Hello, and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies, and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Jeremy Shapiro. I'm the research director of ECFR, and I am substituting for Mark Leonard slash taking over in a brutal coup uh, uh, this podcast. And this week's podcast is going to be about the role of the Persian Gulf in the ongoing war in Gaza. We are here, I am here, uh, with two of my stellar ECFR colleagues, Cinzia Bianco, our visiting fellow in our Middle East and North Africa program, and Hugh Lovett, a senior policy fellow in our Middle East and North Africa program. We're all here in Doha, in Qatar, uh, at the Doha Forum. We're in a glass podcast booth. It makes, makes you feel a little bit like you're the show. Um, but we've been uh, looking at uh, the, the conference, I think, has been overwhelmingly focused on the Gulf. And so we're going to be uh, the Gulf and its relationship to the Gaza war. So we're going to be talking about that today. And I would say, you know, second only to the U.S., the Gulf countries has emerged as key players in the Israel-Hamas war. Qatar particularly has been a crucial go-between in negotiating the recent hostage uh, return and the ceasefire, or lack thereof, but all has also come under fire for its rather chummy relationship with Hamas. Um, so I think what we want to do is talk about what is at stake for the Gulf and what we're hearing at this conference. So um, I'll start off with you, uh, Hugh. Um, Thank uh, you, Jeremy. Uh, so Hugh, I'm, I'm just interested in uh, we've been here a few days. What what are you what are you getting from this conference in terms of how uh, this part of the world is feeling about the Israel Gaza war, and um, and what they're gonna what they might be doing about it? Certainly, the question of Gaza and the broader Israeli Palestinian conflict is almost all consuming at this conference, as one would have imagined, given the the level of violence that we're witnessing. So there is deep concern and many questions about how to move forward uh, towards a, a ceasefire and potential future de-escalation, resolving some of the deep-seated uh, political and security challenges. Um, but perhaps before getting into that, I think it's also interesting in terms of who is here and who is not here. Um, who is not here? Senior level Americans. You know, there are a number of uh, diplomats and representatives, but we don't have the didn't have the, the same level of U.S. representation that we may have had here in previous years. There's probably some reasons for that. Likewise, when one looks at... What are the reasons for it, do you think? Well, in part, and I wouldn't want to speak for our, for our Qatari hosts, but clearly this conference and the way it's been framed is looking much more at the global south. Mm. And when one looks at the, the agenda and, and how they've tried to frame any, everything, and I think that to my mind, also plays to this broader um, reordering of the Middle East from a previous period of uh, what one could call American uh, unipolarity or, or Pax Americana towards a more uh, multilateral or uh, multipolar region. And this is something that we've talked a lot about at ECFR. So this reflects a reality, but I think it also reflects a political intent on the part of the Gulf to demonstrate that they're not only beholden to American leadership, that they have other relations. Um, and these relations also reflect their own uh, national security economic interests. But I think are also particularly important now from a Gulf uh, perception when it comes to trying to de-escalate Gaza, where there's obviously a lot of um, 
uh, regional criticism at what they would see see to be a, as a lack of U.S. Uh, leadership and especially U.S. pressure on Israel to uh, reduce its violence, especially against uh, guards and civilians. So I don't, I did, I interrupted you a bit, but I think you were also going to probably say that Israel is also not here. And Israel is also not here. Now that's yeah. not new. That's um, longstanding. Um, for reasons we perhaps don't want, need to get into, but in terms of the lack of normalization with uh, yeah. with Israel. Um, but I, at the same time, I would also say that uh, through their mediation role, the Qataris have been very public in terms of spelling out their engagement with Israel um, when it comes to trying to broker a ceasefire, trying to broker a release of Israeli hostages held by Hamas. So even though the Israelis might not have been in the room, I don't think that re- reflects a lack of a lack of diplomatic engagement between uh, Qatari officials and Israeli officials. So, Chinzia, um, the Americans aren't here in, in any great uh, with any great representation, um, and the, this, from Hugh's perspective, reflects a more multipolar Middle East. It reflects the idea that the Qataris, as well as some other GCC countries, are thinking that these are regional problems which can have regional and local solutions. Um, so what are they doing about it? Is Are they actually able to uh, play a role play a role beyond the U.S., or, or is this just rhetoric? I mean, Jeremy, I think that you've hit the, the nail on the head because um, this is as actually... Because <laughs> this is exact, exactly what um, is, is unfolding right now. There are different views uh, within the Gulf and the wider region. I would argue that the prevailing view is still that this is mainly an U.S. problem or a Western problem that the U.S. and Europe should lead in terms of uh, getting uh, out of the current uh, escalation and and move towards de-escalation and set the ground for a political solution. And that, you know, for example, from a European point of view um, is, uh, is perplexing because especially for Europeans, that this should be the first crisis that is dealt by uh, mainly by uh, regional p- uh, players, and regional players should lead on the way forward. At least that seems to be the mood in most European capitals. I would argue that in the region there is still not a lot of appetite for leading uh, in terms so of. So the Europeans uh, think that the region should lead, and the region thinks that the Europeans should lead. Correctly, and that's uh, that's honestly. No, no, uh, after you, after you. <laughs> yes, and that's honestly like what we're witnessing right now and that's uh, um, you know it seems like no one really wants to put forward a lot of diplomatic capital and efforts to lead the way forward and I would argue you know Qatar has been mentioned really has been proactive and has taken the initiative but on limited files such as the hostage uh, release on actually formulating a way forward politically uh, they are still uh, sort of gathering ideas they now have the presidents of the GCC and as the first thing that they want to do is reach out to Saudi Arabia to get them to be sort of the face the poster face of uh, of any idea think together uh, in terms of pushing it out there. Um, the Saudis, uh, I would argue, have been doing a lot of uh, um, a lot of diplomatic dance that has been, to a large extent, performative. They have hosted a number of meetings. They've hosted this big Arab Islamic uh, meeting in Riyadh, um, and uh, then they have 
gone around uh, the P5 capitals, uh, starting with Beijing, uh, to bring forward, uh, sort of to gather support for a ceasefire, but they're not really looking beyond um, what actually could uh, become a, a way forward. And the Emiratis, uh, the UAE, are the third sort of kind of proactive player. Um, they are in a very delicate position, having signed a normalization agreement with Israel and being very, very clear in condemning, fully condemning Hamas. I mean, their wording is something to the extent of Hamas is a, a terrorist organization that is using a just cause for a malign agenda and to do other wow, regional players subtle. bidding. Yeah. yeah, so they are in a very unique position, I would argue, politically. And they are starting to um, think about uh, ideas and a plan, but it's very unilateral and it's also very controversial. I'm, I'm sure I, we're going to get just, into that. I'm, I'm a little bit confused by a bunch of things here. I mean, first... Um, Hugh is saying it's a more multipolar Middle East and their Americans are gone and that this is an opportunity for um, the Gulf, but other Arab states, I suppose, to step up. Um, you're saying they're not stepping up, that they're, and I still have this sort of image in my mind of a performative Saudi diplomatic dance. Um, so uh, secondly, the, the sort of diplomatic uncertainty that you described is very much at odds with what I've been hearing at this conference about the urgency of the situation. I mean, every panel basically has um, various Arab officials and commentators uh, talking about the unbelievable humanitarian tragedy, the massive chances for escalation, the ways in which this war could create a, a, a massive ec a, a dislocation of people. These are these are epical events. It doesn't really sound like the kind of thing that you want to, you know, wait for the next GCC meeting to deal with. So what am I missing here? You, you can start off. That's a, just kind of a provocation, but hopefully you'll take it. And I am provoked. <laughs> Good. Um, but just to clarify, I certainly don't think the U.S. has disappeared from the region. That's not mm -hmm. what multipolarity is. It's sure. other actors are also playing a part. Good point. And I think, I think there is a, a contradiction, as you point out, between the reality that is this reality of multipolarity but also the fact that there is not yet really a suitable multilateral and diplomatic framework and or architecture that can replace what came before. So we're still to a certain extent caught in the rules of the previous uh, US hegemonic order, which aren't sufficient actually now to, to be able to move forward uh, regional peace processes, um, but we don't have that alternative framework yet in place. And we're kind of seeing that play out in the case of Israel-Palestine. But I would argue in Israel-Palestine, that's the area where the US weight or the US's weight is still the most felt through its relations with Israel, of course, um, but also just reflective of the longstanding role that the US has played in this conflict. And so my view, if you'll excuse the diplomatic speak, but it's, you know, there can't be only a regional solution to the war in Gaza, but nor can there be only a Western solution to the war in Gaza, because it is so complex and there are so many actors involved. Um, and while we need to recognize that obviously this recent escalation started because of the atrocities committed by Hamas, and there will need to be a response to that, both you know, security and, and diplomatic, the current escalation that we're witnessing is being driven by Israel. Now we can have a conversation about whether that's warranted or not, but that is a fact that when we're seeing escalation in, escalating um, civilian casualties in Gaza, but also the impact that's having on the region, that is being driven 
by Israel's. And I think, yeah, but my question is, what are they doing about it? So when it comes to trying to constrain Israel, I think there is more the region can be doing. And especially those countries that have normalized relations uh, with Israel, let's be clear, United Arab Emirates, foremost amongst them. So yes, they should be doing more. But clearly, this is an area where the US has a lot of leverage and has, from my view, not sufficiently, sufficiently deployed that. Well, let's, uh, I, I can totally accept that. Maybe we should try to, though, to stick with the, with the Gulf angle. So uh, if the U.S. is really involved uh, and the Europeans are a little bit less central, is there something that either the U.S. or Europeans could be doing to help to activate the Gulf to be, and if you heard any of that at the conference, maybe, Jinzia, you could, you could take this question. Um, and also, to get back to my previous question about whether their urgency is really um, sufficient to the situation? Yeah, I think, I mean, you have highlighted a lot of contradictions and there is a lot of confusion around. Um, and I think, yeah, there is a sense of urgency, but this urgency is either alternative di- alternatively directed at the United States and Europe, uh, waiting for them to sort of uh, step up their pressure on, on Israel or uh, geared towards uh, just focusing on a ceasefire, so the cessation of of, uh, violent hostilities. So when there is a clear Arab uh, political focus on an urgent item is, is simply the ceasefire. What I'm questioning is that I'd, I'd certainly would like to see more initiative, political initiative from the region in terms of what after the ceasefire. And um, and to, to answer your question, um, no, there hasn't been a lot of coordination between um, either the US or European capitals and the Gulf region in terms of concretely advancing ideas for, uh, for initiatives. Um, also because there's a lot of acrimony between the parties. And so it's hard to really uh, sort of focus on... Acrimony on between the Israelis between the and the Palestinians? West, or no, between? sorry. Uh, it's between the West and the Gulf uh, uh, capitals because there is really, um, you know, the anti-Western sentiment is is really at all. Very high. Uh, it's uh, yeah. and that is impacting all of the conversations that one that one has on uh, on Israel and Palestine and on Gaza, and you can hardly get past in these kind of conversations, even in private settings with uh, you know officials around the table. You can hardly get past the commenting of the current situation and who's doing their worst and who has done their worst in terms of the violence. Yeah, I can definitely hear the frustration and I, I can certainly understand it. But I have to say from the perspective of a, of a former U.S. official, this sort of idea that you're responsible for something that is many regions away from you uh, and yet and you're doing a terrible job and yet they won't work with you on it. It doesn't really seem like a very productive approach. It may have a it may have a depending on how you look on it, it may have a moral uh, basis but it's not very helpful. Uh, do you, um, Hugh, I mean, just thinking about it, what, what, what would you like to see uh, the, the Gulf region doing? And, and what, what do you think? Uh, do you think that there's any possibility that they can play a more constructive role? Sure. And if you allow me just a 10 second or more uh, sure, answer please. to what you said. But this is a question of morality. The US is implicated in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and it is implicated in the war in Gaza. Whether it, because yeah. it is as the actor that can most leverage Israel is choose, and choosing not to do so, 
at the moment, and it's quite clear in terms of wanting to give Israel more time, which clearly impacts Israeli no, calculations. No, no, the question is not uh, what... And, and also in terms of armaments and things like that. So, so this is not a morality question, it's a, that there is a clear US involvement. No, no, we can stipulate that. I think that 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 makes total sense. The question is, if you are in the region mm. and you and you recognize that fact, that means that you have to deal with the United States on the issue. And that if you don't like what the United States is doing, you have to not sort of sit there on a panel and say, that's terrible. You have to work with them because they are implicated and have leverage to try to bring the, the leverage that you have to bear to changing the perspective, not just sort of sitting around going, complaining about it and admiring the problem. I have noticed in this conference quite a bit of admiring of the problem. And let's face it, this is quite a problem. It has, it's not that hard to admire, but one would like to think in a sort of multipolar Middle East that you talked about in which these countries, and you really do feel it palpably here that Qatar particularly, I think, it's really, they, they feel like they've, they're coming up in the world in the sense that they have greater influence and greater capacity. And yet it's hard to translate that into specific diplomatic action. Absolutely. And, you know, as we've been talking about, the region needs to do more. Um, and not to always go on about Qatar's role, but I think that is a positive example of the Qataris doing something. And yeah. they're limited in what they can do. And I think it's good that they're concentrating on this on this ceasefire hostage mediation track. And they should be supported for that. There's a question mark if and when we get to a ceasefire and a hostage release, how to build on that. And I'll leave that there for now. But other right. Gulf actors have to do more. So there is a question, and let's, before I answer that, let's also admit that they're saying a lot publicly, but you know, privately they're not perhaps being as strong in their messaging when they're talking to Western governments. Um, because they may also see, while they, they are publicly committed to the Palestinian issue, this may not be the, a national security priority for many of these. And they have other interests. They also have you know, deep interests with, bilaterally with Israel, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, as a think tanker, I always have ideas. And I think clearly there needs to be more of a strategic... That's what we pay you for. <laughs> more of a strategic dialogue between the West and the GCC and um, Gulf monarchies. Quiet behind the scenes in terms of how to actually work together with Europe and the US. Part of that will be how to leverage collective relations with Israel, not just to uh, for it to reduce its violence and move towards a ceasefire, but also how to recreate a political horizon. That's the first part. I think the second part is how does one engage with uh, the Palestinian national movement, the Palestinian authority, in a way that can actually help um, mend the internal Palestinian house, which we can all recognize is in uh, disorder and disarray and severely weakened, which has implications not just for Palestinians themselves, but also for our own engagement on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, that we can't make progress on Gaza or the broader Israeli-Palestinian peace process with a Palestinian leadership that is um, divided and weak. And there clearly is an important Arab role to play in how to help Palestinians mend those positions. And I think that's where there needs to be also uh, ongoing dialogue with Europeans who remain the primary funder of the Palestinian Authority, so also directly implicated in that. So that would be for me the, the, two, um, the two areas uh, for collective engagement. That's very helpful. Um, let's pick up on that, Chinzia, a little bit and talk about, there has been some talk here um, about the the day after. Um, I guess there's a sort of recognition that uh, the war will eventually end, um, and that they need they'll be need needing to do a few different things uh, after the war ends. One is uh, the 
sort of reopening the question of normalization, either moving backwards or forwards on normalization with Israel, depending on which country we're talking about. Um, secondly, is this sort of reconstruction issue? And thirdly, is the political future of the Palestinian governance, I guess is the best way I can put it. Um, it. Have you heard much thinking on any of those three questions here? What would you, how would you say that the Gulf is approaching them, if at all? Yes, there's there are conversations about all of uh, these points. Um, you know, the the certainly on the question of reconstruction, uh, we've been hearing very clear messaging of different Gulf capitals being quite um, concerned that they will be asked to foot the bill for um, the reconstruction uh, because of by virtue of the, their being very wealthy uh, energy uh, exporters. Um, but um, I have heard a lot of hesitation. I mean, uh, you range from voices who argue we won't reconstruct for the second or third time the that school that we had already built in the first place and has been destroyed once or twice and there is no horizon for things to change to we won't reconstruct we won't pay for reconstruction if we are not fully on board with the political direction of the process Two, uh, we won't we don't think that we actually have um a chief responsibility um, to rebuild uh, Gaza and, uh, you know, we can contribute, but only if others, namely, obviously, uh, not just uh, not just uh, Europe, but mostly Europe, uh, do doesn't pay sort of a, a the, the, the most significant role. In terms of the political future of the Palestinian governance, um, so that's what I meant where I, when I said that uh, it's quite disappointing to see uh, not just a lack of initiative, but I would argue even a lack of um, a strategic focus that is uh, really looking to build a consensus position and then take this position to different world capitals, including to uh, the US and Europe, because there are, to this day, different ideas of what should happen uh, to Palestinian governance in, in the future. You know, you um, go from the Saudis were arguing that um, the West Bank governance uh, of led by Abu Mazen is actually good to go to be expanded to to Gaza, um, and then they should, you know, not open new files and and bring in new people, but uh, sort of build on this governance. Build on that record of success. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but you know, I would argue the reason why they're doing this is because, and that's really important to keep in mind, that the Gulf countries have not had a lot of engagement with the Palestinians politically for several years. And the new leadership in Abu Dhabi, in Riyadh, they have had very limited engagement. They don't know them very well. With the exception of Qatar. With the exception of Qatar, absolutely. With yeah. the exception of Qatar. Uh, but in Saudi Arabia and, and uh, UAE, they've had very limited engagement. They don't know very, them very well. They have been actually involved in a lot of tense uh, confrontation even. I mean, if you recall Trump's deal of the century, mm -hmm. um, you know, just look at How what happened. 
<laughs> Just look at what happened then. We we knew that um, Saudi Arabia's leader um, leadership um, and the Emirati leadership was actually working quite closely with Trump and trying to uh, sell the deal of the century to Jordan, to Egypt, and to the Palestinians themselves. Obviously, that was rejected quite significantly uh, in all of these three um, places, and that generated a lot of tension. Um, so they don't really have those deep connections that they can build on uh, to have a clear idea of what is the best outcome. Um, you know, with some, again, does, with does some that exceptions. Mean that they will get back onto the normalization track when this war ends? Do they? Do you expect, I mean, this the, the Saudi-Israeli normalization seemed like it might be imminent mm-hmm. uh, before the war started. Um, uh, and obviously it's been put off indefinitely because of the war, is it going? Is that agenda going to resume? Do you think after the war? Yeah, I think it would. Um, and I think the Saudis have also been quite honest in saying that they would uh, restart uh, the talks. Um, I don't think that this could happen anytime soon, as long as there is this level of violence. So certainly not. I've long argued that they wouldn't want to do this for the Biden administration anyways, regardless of what a lot of people in the Biden administration were thinking. But I think they were already waiting for the next administration, anticipating a Republican um, um, leadership, and that they would move ahead on the basis of what they had already negotiated to sign with the new Republican White House. Hmm. So maybe Gaza doesn't change all that much in this region. Um I guess maybe my final question um, for both of you, I've been impressed at the conference at the degree of sort of at least rhetorical unanimity I've heard about um, about the uh, about the war and about uh, Israel's responsibility for it and uh, and the suffering of the Palestinian people, et cetera. And I think um, when I ask, people about this because this is a fractious region and there's not that much that they agree on to that to that degree but I think you see a lot of unanimity on this question and when I ask people about that they always say well there's a there's a domestic politics here of this there's an Arab street um, that really constrains the governments on this question so that even though normalization is happening they're not really talking about it um, can you explain to me the domestic politics uh, of, in this region of of the Arab Street? Is this something? Is this real, or is this something that um, that uh, that uh, Gulf officials just say to Americans who don't know better? I'll let Tinzia go more into the weeds of the domestic politics. Well, what I would say is, to your point about you know maybe Gaza didn't change that much. I think that could be true to a certain extent over the long term. And obviously that mm. that depends on whether we see significant regional escalation. Of course. But what Gaza has done is it's reminded Arab governments that there is still a strong pro-Palestinian population, Arab population. And it has, at least for now, undone what was one of the major foreign policy accomplishments of Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, and arguably the Trump administration, which was to have um, disconnected the Palestinian issue from Israeli-Arab ties and to have marginalized the Palestinian issue on the regional and international stage. It is now clear, as we've been talking about, that the Palestinian issue in Gaza is front and center. And it is also clear 
that Arab governments have to factor in the, the, the pro-Palestinian sentiment of their populations. And that may matter more or less, depending on how democratic or responsive these governments are. But, what it, but to finish on this point, what it really emphasizes is for any government that wants to um, pursue public relations with Israel, is that comes with a risk, with a reputational risk. That even if they want to do that for their own um, political and security and economic interests, these relations become, at least over short term, a liability. And we've seen that from Morocco, we've seen that to a certain extent for the Emirates and, and elsewhere. So at least during this period of, of, ten, I mean, of, of regional tension and massive public anger at Israel, these countries have to recalibrate their relations. So I, so I think it really does demonstrate just how complex a lot of the internal calculations that Arab governments and Gulf governments have to make at the moment. That does seem complex. Chinsia, uh, maybe you can explain that complexity a little bit, and particularly if you can sort of square that with your last answer that normalization will resume, process of normalization will resume uh, after the Gaza war fades a little bit. So you've got six Gulf monarchies, and let's quickly say that uh, Oman, Kuwait, and Qatar uh, have the most pro-Palestinian population. Um, the sentiment uh, is is really strong. In Kuwait, uh, you know there is a, a parliament that is uh, representative of uh, the, the electorate and is very, very pro-Palestinian. For example, oh, this democracy thing is totally problematic. <laughs> And, uh, and then you have Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, and the UAE. And also in these three countries, generally speaking, the people uh, are pro-Palestinian, but they have gone through uh, another uh, sort of uh, uh, phase, which is a phase that has lasted between, I would argue, 2012 and 2020, which is a phase of constant... Um, uh, thinking of the problem posed by Islamism uh, to political stability uh, in their own countries and in the wider region. And so they have identified as, you know, the most vocal representative of the Palestinians, organizations like Hamas. Um, and, uh, you know, Hamas is obviously an Islamist violent organization. So it's, it's been at the center of this uh, political effort by the leaderships in these three countries in particular um, to try and get the population to turn against any Islamist organization. And they have done so quite successfully. I mean, there are, to this day, over 60 Hamas operatives in Saudi jails. And, uh, you know, as, as mentioned, the UAE has taken a very clear uh, position uh, against uh, Hamas, uh, defining it a, a terrorist organization in no uncertain terms. So there is, you know, that sort of additional layer to the population in these three countries. And then there is a final element which explains why normalization is still on the table, that is, particularly in Saudi Arabia, the rhetoric is now um, almost obsessively centered uh, on this idea of the national interest that has to go above anything else. And so if you, from a leadership point of view, um, succeed in, in arguing that relations with Israel serve the Saudi national interest, you will get some support in the Saudi population. And that's what has been slowly going on over a couple of years already. Okay. So there's some, some nationalism happening. Um, so thank you for all of that. Um, I think we've helped, we've helped add a little bit of clarity and there is one thing left to do on this podcast. And I can see that both of you are ready for it. I'm very impressed. 
that thing is our bookshelf section. Uh, so what, what uh, Hugh and Chinzia, can you recommend to our listeners? Well, Hugh, I'm, Hugh, let's start with you. I'm very much looking forward to reading Emperor of Rome by Miriam Beard, which provides a... Oh, I read that. That's good. There we are. Yeah. Double recommendation, which provides a, a colorful look at all the different uh, Roman emperors and their personalities. Okay, that should be very helpful for this region. Um, Jinzia, what's on your uh, what's on your bookshelf? Actually, right now on my bookshelf is the new book by Tobias Bock um, called "Seeking Stability Amidst Disorder: um, The Foreign Policies of Saudi Arabia, the UAE, and Qatar Between 2010 and 2020," which I'm um, sure also tackles some of the issues that we talked about today. Excellent. Okay. So if you enjoyed listening to this podcast, please let other people know and support my coup by writing about it on your social media page or ours. But above all, hopefully, please give us a good rating. Uh, I've learned here in Doha that six stars is possible. And review us on whichever platform you download uh, this podcast. Uh, we will put a link to all the publications we mentioned on our website at ecfr.eu. But for now, from Chinsia, Hugh, and myself, Jeremy Shapiro, it is goodbye. The researcher for this podcast is Anand Sundar, and the editor is Maria Farrow Saratz. Mm-hmm.